welcome to a new episode of the Art Business Podcast. So my guest today will not require much introduction for many of you listening. Uh, he's Henry Lydiot. I always think of him as Professor Henry Lydiot um, because he he's a scholar practitioner and former visiting professor of art law at the University of the Arts London and has been a course consultant and visiting lecturer in legal, business and professional practice studies at major art schools in the UK since 1978. Uh, he's also a, 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 has, has been a major consultant uh, and dissertation supervisor for the MA Art Business, among other courses at Sotheby's Institute of Art. I've known Henry in that capacity uh, since the early millennium when I joined Sotheby's. And I think, Henry, you were already teaching at Sotheby's, if I remember, in 2000, weren't you? Or 2000? Yeah, I was, it was, it was, David, it, it was on the uh, Contemporary Art MA. I was first asked to contribute to that. That's right. And at the time, if I remember rightly, it was Tony Godfrey was the programme director. It was, Tony was the director, yeah. Great, good, good, good. And um, Henry has published uh, quite broadly on aspects of art and the law, including The Visual Artist and the Law, these are the titles, The Visual Artist Copyright Handbook, Visual Arts and Crafts Guide to the New Laws of Copyright and Moral Rights, and Henry's specialist research and teaching areas include international legal frameworks for art business, international art transactions, international art auction practices, commercial and non-commercial museum and gallery management, international intellectual property rights and their management, and artistic estate planning and management. As you can see from those research interests, Henry, one of the reasons Henry is so valuable um, uh, as a teacher for us is that we have a uh, we have a real global mix of um, students doing our MA in art business, and uh, we can't just focus on the UK and Europe. Uh, people want to know about transactions between countries all over the world, as happens indeed in the art world. So thank you very much, Henry, for guesting today. My pleasure. My pleasure. And, and as usual, we start with a few questions about your, your lifestyle. So, Henry, could you tell us what your favourite city is, if you have one, and why? My favourite city is Paris, wow. without doubt. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that in particular because my favourite part of Paris, or voisin, in Paris is Pigalle. And I mentioned that because my mother was born in Pigalle. My mother, often people say, your mother was French, Henry. I'll say, no. My mother would say, I'm not French. I'm Parisienne. Lovely. So I, I have that family <laughs> connection. And for obvious reasons, it's, it's important to me. Absolutely. Was your father English? My father is English, or yes. my late father, they're both dead now. Bless but them. yeah, they, 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 they met um, up in the north of England, in the Manchester area, because um, my mother was brought over to England when she was nine or ten years of age, having been born, bred, you know, um, as I say, in, in Pigalle, and then in the 1920s and then was brought over for all sorts of family reasons. And she, she developed her early life in the Manchester area. And my, my father's family, the Lydiates, were originally um, from 
the, the Merseyside, the, the, the Liverpool area of Manchester, uh, of, of the Northwest. <laughs> and uh, my great-great-grandfather, Lydiate, was one of the navigators or the navvies who built the Manchester Ship Canal from wow. Liverpool to Manchester, which is why the family ended up in Manchester, <laughs> although we originally came from the coastal plain uh, of Lancashire, just, just around Liverpool. In Tremendous. fact, there's a place just north of Liverpool, still there, called Lydiate. Oh. That's where we're from. Wow. So, so it must be... My, pa my parents met just after the Second World War in 1946 in oh, Manchester. And wow. um, I was the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Amongst other things, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 we took our students because of COVID. We did um, a, an extra UK study visit earlier this year. We went to Edinburgh and Glasgow. And uh, I remember telling my students that I was, I, they said, are you Scottish? And I said, no, but I apparently I was conceived in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, unlike, unlike David Beckham, your parents didn't call you Edinburgh. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And my, they did used to call me um, my little piece of Scotch mist. <laughs> All right. Okay. So there you go. And um, so we might come back to you know. I'm sure that you'd have a lot to talk about the places that you 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 particularly favour in in Paris. But we, we might come back to that. But um, so that if that's your favourite city, do you do you like the countryside? Are there any kind of favourite rural locations to get out of? Yeah, the city I think that, that one of the things that you're bound to want to know is where I went to college or university. Yes. And I, I did that uh, up in Newcastle, um, Newcastle upon Tyne, which is for those listeners who, who don't, can't place it, it's on the Scottish border. It's on the border of the Northeast of England with yeah. Scotland. Yeah. And the county between Newcastle city, which is where I was the uh, university, and the Scottish border, there's a county region, massive region, called Northumberland. Mm -hmm. That's my favourite rural location, Absolutely. Northumberland. It's the yeah. most unsung, unspoiled, wild place. And the people are wonderful. The topography is wonderful. You've got the Cheviot Hills to the north with snow on the top, all that stuff, and the border with, with Scotland. And then you've got the coast, of course. The eastern coast, which is just one of the... If anyone's listening who wants to take a great English railway trip, get the train from wherever through Newcastle to Edinburgh because it goes along the coast, and the coast there is absolutely fabulous. And the, this so year's students will remember we did indeed do that rail journey when we went to Edinburgh. Did you really? Yeah, it was oh, we I, went along that... Oh, you know how fantastic it is. Yeah. And of course, Annick Castle, which is the seat of the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland, is, is another yeah. great place to, to visit there as well. Absolutely. And Bamborough Castle. Yeah. And of course, in the in the 18th century and 19th centuries, Northumberland was the place for coal, if I remember rightly. You know, there's an awful lot of coal that was being... being totally mined. right. It was, it's a massive coal field, the Northumberland yeah. coal field. Yeah. And, yeah. and the seams of coal go out into the North Sea. Yes. So when the miners would go down in, in, into the pit shaft in the ground in Northumberland, 
they then had to travel miles out underground underneath Under the, the sea. sea. Isn't that weird? A bit like the Euro, the, the Channel Tunnel when you go through there. Yeah. And um, and of course, the when you say that it's very close to the Scottish border, of course, in the Roman period, it was at the end of Hadrian's Wall. I, I think that, Had, that they, Hadrian's Wall actually went through um, Newcastle at one stage, although it's been pretty much obliterated, obviously, with the, the no, new... the castle is still there. That's yeah. why the Romans called it Novocastria. Yes, the new camp. <laughs> the new camp, that's right. And that was, and they built a castle there. And they built a wall between there on the east coast and 90 miles west to Carlisle in the west. Incredible, which you can walk across. To keep out the invading, you know, tribes Picks. of Picts and Scots and all <laughs> Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And the wall is still there. Yeah, it's the incredible. Still yeah, and yeah. and if, again, if anyone's listening and they like hiking, uh, you know, look at the walk along Hadrian's Wall, and there's some amazing Roman archaeology along there. Yeah, uh, and it was Hadrian was the emperor who actually initiated it, or whatever. He was the emperor when it was built. Absolutely, it's uh, it's tremendous, and it, you're quite right. I mean, I've been to Northumberland, and I've been in the countryside there. A couple of times in my life and it really is beautiful and wild. I, what I remember is some um, incredible waterfalls in, in very wild land landscapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And 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 you were talking about the castle. Do you do you do you have a favorite building in the world, Henry? It can be ancient or modern. Um yeah, uh, my favorite building, probably off the top of my head, would be the Pedrera, Gaudi Anthony Gaudi's Pedrera in Barcelona. Yes, I just think that's amazing because it's yeah. funky. It's fun. It yeah. was like surrealistically miles ahead of its time. Yeah, and it's been kept and preserved really well. I mean, it's just no, I just think it's great, and I think <laughs> his. I love his work, both inside and out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, I think music. I seem to remember from earlier conversations with you on occasions. Um, music was quite a, it was quite a big thing in your life when you were younger and at university. Yeah, it was, David. It, it, it kind of, if I can just link it back to the Newcastle experience. When I was at, at high school, my two major subjects were English literature and history. Okay, and the, those were my two majors, which I was thinking about for university. But in the year before I left my high school, I, did, I, I had met somebody from Yugoslavia, what was then Yugoslavia, in England, who said, why don't you come to Yugoslavia so, next summer? So that was the summer before my final year. So I was like 16 years of age. I said, okay, fine, I'll come. But of course I didn't have any money. How the hell do you get from Manchester to Yugoslavia? What would eventually be Dubrovnik, right? And then Zagreb. So I hitchhiked all wow. the way. <laughs> I hitchhiked all the way on my own to Yugoslavia. And that relates to why I decided to study law at university, at college. And the law course that I wanted to, to study was the one at Newcastle. 
because it was it was one of the, the best law because in the UK, for those listening who are not maybe from North America, you can study law as an academic undergraduate sub subject in Europe, unlike in the USA, where it's a postgraduate study where you go to law school. So I and the reason why I wanted to study law, having majored in English literature and history, was because I ran into the law hitchhiking from Manchester to Yugoslavia, to Croatia, because I kept getting arrested and thrown in jail because I didn't know the rules. I didn't know that hitchhiking was illegal in France. But I, after I was arrested, I knew I was, okay? And, so, and similarly, went through France, through Switzerland, you know, all the, along the way, I had to learn. The, and I realized that at, at that very tender formative age, ignorance of the law, as they say, is no defense. And I thought, I really need to learn about laws. <laughs> so I will study law at university. That's how, I, how it came about. And what about music? So when I was <laughs> when I was at the university uh, in Newcastle, this was in the night in the mid 1960s, mid to late 1960s. OK. What was happening in the late 1960s? Good time to be at university. <laughs> music was unbelievable. Absolutely. Music was there was a revolution going on. It was unbelievable. But the link between music and particularly contemporary bands and art schools has not really been properly documented or written about, but the art schools from the 1960s and 70s and maybe beyond produced some great bands, some great singer songwriters, because people who are interested in being in bands in the 1960s, like John Lennon, went to art school. Mm -hmm because it was the way they, they could extend their education. Okay, so I studied law, as, as I said, at Newcastle-upon-Tyne University. The law faculty building was in a quadrangle, in the north of the quadrangle was the law faculty, and in the east of the quadrangle was the building of the art and architecture school, right? the fine art school and the architecture school. And when we were going into the quadrangle for lectures at nine o'clock in the morning, all the really funky and interesting people went east. <laughs> and I went with my boring buddies into the law faculty. So I got really interested in all those people. And they became people that I knew well and I hung out with. And one of them, eventually, I married. And you know Liz. <laughs> Liz, yes. And she was one of the art students. Okay, eventually. But anyway, to cut a long story short, there was the music scene around the university was absolutely fantastic. We had all the great bands coming up to Newcastle to stay. And they had, because it was so far away from stay over. London, they would stay over. <laughs> and, and so I worked with. Is a, 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 with the social secretary who organized the bands and the concerts and everything for the university students. And one of the um, 
so I got to know the bands and I helped to put on gigs and all that stuff. So I met all sorts of interesting and exciting people um, that are now household names. But, but one of the things I was asked to do, they said, Henry, because I played, I was a singer songwriter, I, I did things uh, musically. And uh, I, I did, I gigged around the university like you do as a student. And the social secretary said to me, we need, we've been asked to find a local band that is unsigned for a major national music competition, searching for the best unknown band in the country. And it's a all bit, the sort of <laughs> Exactly. And all the university social secretaries in the UK have been asked to find a band, name a band, and enter it into a kind of band competition. Mm. To cut a long story short, I found a local band. I thought they were great. And I said to these guys, they were just a three-piece band, like Led Zeppelin, you know, mm. that type, <laughs> same era. And I said, are you interested in this? You know, and they said, yes. So I worked with them in kind of arranging and shaping and encouraging them and eventually writing things with them. And we entered the competition to cut a very long story short. Nine months later, we won the whole thing. Wow. Nationally, we were the best unsigned band in the university. And we had record labels queuing up to sign us, including George Martin, who was the producer of the Beatles, who just set up his own company and was using Abbey Road. And he said, if you sign with me, I will be your record producer. We can do an album in Abbey Road. And we said, what's not to like? Let's do it. So the, the very same time that happened, I graduated with my law degree, uh, but I didn't have any money to go and study at the bar because you needed your money because I didn't have anything. So my thought was, I'll work with the band. I became the, the kind of organizer, manager, if you like, of the band and sort of semi-arranger, whatever, with, with the guys. And we all went professional and we all went on the road and did it all. And then we made our album in Abbey Road. And it was, that was fantastic. And I earned some, enough money to, to begin funding myself at the bar. So that's how I got involved in music uh, in that way. And my name at the time was quite well known around the music scene because I was the person who was fronting the business side of this band. Interesting. But so you weren't actually on stage with them. You were kind of managing. No, I, I was never on stage with them. I was kind of behind the scenes. But you said that you did some songwriting, perhaps? No, I did some singer-songwriting. Yeah. I did my own thing. Your own thing, but then Completely you... separately. May I ask the name of the band? The band was called Gin House. Gin House. It sounds very familiar Gin House. to me. It's, yeah. a little bit, it's a little bit before my time, but, you know... Um... And what happened was, after we'd made the album, and after we'd been doing so well, musical differences intervened. The band broke up, and they, they stopped performing and touring or whatever. And the album was just left with George to sell it on to anybody else. You can still get it. It's still available. 
and mm. you know it, it's been redone and all that stuff and I was left high and dry it was kind of like what do I do now mm. well I want to study at the bar and I want to practice as a lawyer that's how uh, I started but the link between that and those art students I was interested in in Newcastle is this that there I was eventually studying as a bar student in London and all those students that I knew, these are fine art students, had come down to London to do their masters at Chelsea, Central St. Martins, uh, Wimbledon, the Royal College. Yes. Okay. And what happened was they said, Henry, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm studying at the bar. And that was the beginning of art law, <laughs> David, because they said, we're running into difficulties with dealers, with galleries, with people ripping us off, selling our work. Can you help us out? And I started helping them out as a friend because they didn't have any money. I wasn't called to the bar, qualified yet, but you know, I was on my way. And that's how it all started. And hence your current, one of your current interests, both ethically and legally is is helping still you still help out artists uh, with legal and ethical I problems. do I, I I often people somewhere in some parts of the world I get introduced as a speaker or whatever as this is Henry Lydiate he's the artist's lawyer yes and I I'm holding my hand up now I always <laughs> plead guilty to that <laughs> I, actually as you know David I'm an art lawyer but if somebody says you're an artist lawyer I have a reputation for that and I'd say yes, but I'm particularly interested in the young unknown, the person without the bargaining power, the person who, who can't negotiate, doesn't know how to negotiate. I've always been, been passionate about helping that kind of person because as I said, as I've said many, many times, if the creme de la creme is at the top of the milk bottle, you know, the cream is at the top. You don't get the cream unless the milk is healthy. Absolutely. That's a very so good So my, my focus is on not the creme de la creme, but on the main young unknowns. If we don't have young unknowns, we don't have the stars. Mm -hmm. And I guess you might refer to them as emerging artists. We would on our programme. And um, Yeah, emerging. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, I and, call them um, young unknowns. I don't know whether you're aware of this, Henry, but about three years ago, I'm a I'm a judge on an emerging artist prize, which is probably very much the kind of artist you're talking about. None of the if they're going to win the prize, um, they can't have already won any like prize at all, um, right. nor can they be selling their work successfully for like say over two three thousand pounds. So we 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 want to choose someone who shows promise. And, um, yeah, and then yeah. two years ago. I had the idea of an optional project with the MA Art Business students. They can they can do it or not do it. It's up to them. Where we put them, they can choose artists from the shortlist to work with for a three month period and share their interest in art business. Probably that what they know of the law as well. And it's been yeah. very successful. And some of them are now still working together uh, because so after about three wow. months, we say at that point, 
you can go your right. own way if you want to. You you, you know you know yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can make money yeah. together should you want to. So that's been quite successful. So I guess yeah. that is our program offering at least the, the the opportunity to do a similar thing ethically speaking, and and it can yeah, become absolutely. financially worthwhile sometimes as you're doing. In a way, in a way, David, what you're describing is a kind of commitment to values. Exactly. When you say ethics, what one of my my one of my personal and professional values is it, it, probably the most important one, not necessarily, but one of my values is knowledge transfer. I believe in knowledge transfer. Mm -hmm. Because nobody, when I was a young, ignorant teenager, hitchhiking yep. across Europe, yeah, you know I had no you. knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've now got many years of experience of both studying and experience with yes. clients of knowledge and all that stuff. And I'm passionate about transferring it to people who don't know. Yeah. I love it in the classroom or even with clients where you see them getting a light bulb moment. Absolutely. And they go, oh my God, mm. you know, they almost rock off their chair or whatever <laughs> it is because you've not, you're not the oracle, but you've, you've opened, it is the true definition, isn't it, of education, leading out. You lead them out to see something that they didn't see before. And I, I forgot to mention when I introduced you, Henry, that you founded the Henry, Henry Liddick Partnership in the early millennium. We'll come to that yeah. in a moment, but I just wanted to yeah. rewind because we talked yeah. something about your interest in music. Um, but yeah. do you have any early memories of the visual arts? And uh, can you say more about how you then began to get into I mean I know that you you like and love art but can you say more about how that began well I without being boring David the way I can answer that is to say I never formally studied art history neither did I, I never formally studied art okay <laughs> um and um my journey in learning about visual art because my first love was music, singer, songwriting, performing, okay, was, was the art students at my university, at my college. And I'll give, I'll tell you this, here's an anecdote. <laughs> the, one of the tutors of my, my, my buddies, my artists, at Newcastle at that time was an, a UK artist, a British artist called Richard Hamilton. <laughs> okay. I wonder how many of our listeners know that name. <laughs> I mean, well, you look him up. Very I'll, under, I'll, I'll very underrated. Okay. And mm. Richard, I got to know through them and, uh, and, and eventually when I moved down to London and started to work with artists, Richard lived in Highgate mm -hmm. in London. That's where he lived then, okay. But at the time I met Richard, what was he doing? He was replicating the large glass. Duchamp's large glass. Which is now in Tate, Tate Modern, I think, is it that It one? is in Tate yep. Modern, he, because it was not able to travel for the Duchamp retrospective in 66. 67 because it had cracked in the museum in Philadelphia and it couldn't travel. Okay. So Richard, who was a great friend of Duchamp, 
and was helping Tate to curate the Duchamp retrospective, said, we can't have a retrospective of Duchamp's works without large the large glass. So Tate said, yeah, that's right. So he said, well, why don't I ask, uh, ask Marcel if I can rebuild it? <laughs> so he contacted Marcel and Marcel said, what a great idea, Richard. Okay. Rich. Sent him all his notes and everything else and how to do it. And when I was at the university, Richard had a studio in that building that I visited in the way that I've explained. And in the basement, he was building the large class. Wow. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm whatever, you know, doing. So I said, you're, 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 you're replicating someone else's work? And he said, <laughs> yeah, I am. These are all the notes here and everything else. I said, okay, fine. You know, who is, whose work is it? He said, Marcel Duchamp. And I said, famously, I said, who the hell's Marcel Duchamp? <laughs> and that was the beginning of my journey. Well, that's... That's a great admission. So I, start, I started with Duchamp yeah. and I work backwards from Duchamp. Yeah. I work forwards from Duchamp and I work backwards from Duchamp because the people who taught me were my artist clients. I've never met an artist who doesn't know their art history and they're forever conveying the information and the understanding particularly in the early years when I was hungry to learn. Obviously that started me off and then I started to do self, you know, self-teaching and researching and thinking and all, and going to shows and galleries and all, the, and buying catalogs, doing the obvious stuff that you do. So that's how it all started for me. Absolutely. Uh, I started at the wrong end. I didn't study art history. I started with Duchamp. <laughs> Who the hell is Duchamp? It, okay. It's similar in, in with classical music. I instead of starting with Beethoven and Mozart, although my dad used to buy me those kind of records, there was a, there used to be a little thing called you know composer of the month, and he used to he realised that I needed that kind of education. I think so. I, I when I was very small, I had those to listen to. But um, when I went to university, obviously I've been I grew up with the kind of musicians that listening to the music you're listening to, Bowie, etc. Bolan Bowie, the whole the whole crowd, fantastic time to be listening to music. Obviously, and, you know anything yeah. like classical music couldn't had no time for at all. It was so exciting the music scene in the in the in the seventies and the latter part of the seventies when I was at university. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and okay. then I then I started going to the proms. So I, I realised when I was a student I could get this very cheap way of get of educating myself in classical music. And, and the great thing about the BBC proms, which take place in the Albert Hall for listeners, um, they're about to start, I think, mid-July, um, is that you can very cheaply, you can go and actually stand or lie or sit up in the gallery and, um, and hear the best orchestra in the world. And the great thing about the BBC proms is they commission new work. And so some of the earliest music I was getting into is actually, now I realise, some of the most difficult to listen to. Uh, people like Peter Maxwell Davis and so on. And the Mahler symphonies were my starting point. And, and people always oh, find that right. quite amusing that I knew those before I knew the Beethoven symphonies. But and anyway, yeah. without venturing further down that, it's interest. I think it can be really interesting to start in medias res, as Virgil, the Roman poet, said, in the middle of things, rather than let's start at the beginning and work through from classical antiquity exactly. to yeah, Warhol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So the Henry Lydiate Partnership, Henry, that I think you founded this in the early 2000s. That might be a way, maybe you could talk about what that is and how that leads up to what you've been what, doing. What, what, David, yeah, okay, happy to do that. What happened was I did qualify, I, I, I sound as if I'm not answering you, I, I am answering you. Um, uh, I did qualify at the bar and started to practice in the courts in London. Yes. That was my, my kind of bailiwick, that was my stamping ground. And that's where, that was my day job, if you like. And, and you would be titled a barrister? Yeah, a barrister, yeah. yeah. Because the students, some or, of us uh, might not know what you mean by the bar. They probably yeah. think well, a place where you okay. go and pull pints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, the, in North America, um, it would be called a trial lawyer. Okay. We have a split legal profession, solicitors who are like general practitioners, if you like, like medical doctors. And then a trial lawyer is a barrister, a bar, which is where you're called to the bar to be a barrister, where you have rights of audience to present cases before the courts. Solicitors are trained to deal with the general public who have legal issues and barristers are trained to present cases in the court. So barristers clients are solicitors. Yes. Yeah. Solicitors clients are the public. Yeah. And, and as a barrister, uh, you must have got very interested. You said that one part of your degree was English literature as well as history, but coming to the English literature, um, yeah, you must have been quite interested in rhetoric and verbal communication. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, which absolutely. is obviously really. Um, but important. also, also, um, it, it's uh, uh, also it's often said. Uh, 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 I suppose it's a truism that often said that actors on the stage film actors are kind of failed barristers or trial lawyers. <laughs> Many of them are. And barristers are failed actors. <laughs> exactly so, exactly so. And That's I true. think that, that, that my formative, yeah, literature, my formal studies and all that stuff, yeah, that was relevant, absolutely. But also my, my, my teenage and later uh, singer songwriting performing busking in the streets, doing that whole thing, playing in cafes, bars, restaurants, with usually with a musical partner. We did, a, we, weren't the, we weren't like the Everly Brothers, but, but we, we were a duo. We played guitar and two-part harmony and all that stuff. Um, we, we kind of helped because yeah. I wasn't worried about kind of being in court, presenting cases, arguing cases yeah. is, is like a performance. Yeah, because you're, I mean, you're confident in front of the public. You see me in the classroom, David. Yes. We've worked together. Yes. What I do is a performance. Yes, absolutely. For the yes. students. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so sorry. What was your question? Hen the Henry Lydiate Partnership, the foundation, yeah. and so it's what its happened mission. was yeah. I got a record, and and I was doing a lot of pro bono artist legal stuff. Mm -hmm. around the edges of this mm -hmm. in my spare time mm -hmm. because a trial lawyer is a trial lawyer and he's not a kind of ordinary, generally legal advisor. 
what happened was that I set up, I realized that I was probably the only lawyer that I knew in the UK who specialized in the visual arts, right? So if I was the only one, were there any more? So I started to, to look around and, say, and I realized there weren't any. So I became the go-to lawyer and more and more clients wanted me to be like a solicitor offering legal advice and help rather than waiting for me to help them to present lawsuits. So this, this germ of the idea came about that I should maybe think about winding off my trial law work and becoming more of an advisor, assistant, a teacher, if you like, a scholar mm -hmm. practitioner, rather than being a hard-nosed kind of, you know, you know, heavy lawyer presenting cases. And that, that change, it took a while to change that, coincided with my understanding, my realization that, that because of the internet particularly, and because when mainland China um, moved into the international marketplace well, around 25 years ago, that the art world was becoming, and this is your expertise rather than mine, was becoming more international. And now, of course, it's global. And I realized it was moving in that direction, particularly when my artist clients and other clients, you know, whether they be collectors, I eventually I had collectors and dealers and some, some of the smaller auction businesses and then museum and gallery institutions um, came to me for help because why did they do that? Because I was the only one. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that, and then I, I helped some other wannabe art lawyers. I mentored them and helped one or two people along the way to develop a practice. And then it started to grow not from me, but it started naturally to grow. And as the art world became more international, I realized that my qualifications to practice in the courts in the UK and to a certain extent in London, because you're only allowed to, quote, to practice in the courts where you're qualified to practice. Oh. You can't just go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay. I realized that actually my work in the art business area was going to be limited if I just limited myself to trial law work. Because it would only be in London. Well, it would only be the yeah. UK. In the UK. Okay. Yeah. So eventually, with a handful of people that you know, uh, and, and I won't name them for the podcast unless you want me to. No, but, do. You know, okay, Lubna Azar, yes. Daniel McLean, Kino. a guy called... Uh, Rob Gross and me, we set up the Henry Lydiate Partnership. Wasn't he working with you? Uh, uh, yeah, he was working with me, but he wasn't one of the partners. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Kino Monte Barrel. I haven't seen so any of them for a while. Hmm. What we decided to do was to create a partnership, not the Henry Lydiate Partnership, a partnership which would be like an umbrella, like a network of ourselves. Sure. As, as kind of art business lawyers, art business lawyers. Mm 
So Daniel was in his practice somewhere. Lubna was in her practice somewhere in like general law firms. You see yeah. what I mean? And I was, I was, I was winding off my practice in the courts. To cut a long story short, we decided to set up this partnership, the Henry Lydiate Partnership, to offer our service, specialist services, which was not just law, but it was business and management as well, beyond the UK, where we de didn't need to worry about being legally qualified to present cases in courts if necessary. So what we then decided to do was to try to find in various parts of the art world where art activity was happening, law local lawyers who might wanna be art lawyers. So we trained and educated them and used them locally when anything was needed to be done by a local lawyer. Interesting. So, so in a way, it was a network and still is a network. And the partners I now have are located in, there's me based in the UK, one in the Republic of Ireland, one in France, um, one in South Africa. Uh, I have not a partner, but an associate in New York City for obvious reasons. One in Chicago, Daniel is now in LA. Yeah. And I have one in Singapore. So Daniel is still actually, so he's working as a, as a lawyer in LA and- In and LA. He's yeah. a kind well, of agent of yours. Yeah, well, he's a partner. He's yeah. one of the partners. So, so in other words, in that way, we are, those places like I've named- It's like a global are, network. Are that, it's a network. Yeah. And sometimes we just work on our own. Yeah. And then sometimes we come together. And if it's an international dimension, then we've got we've got the reach. Yeah, maybe. So that's that's how it came about, David. That's interesting. Maybe maybe a, for a future podcast, we could try and get them all to get you all together in a panel and talk about you know international. So give some some examples of, of yeah yeah that would be really. And Henry, I was just going to ask you. Um, I think one of the kind of truisms when when our students start um, studying art law is that is that there are very few standard laws that are directly for artists and for for the for the art world. Maybe you could say something about the problems and solutions that that causes. That um, you know, as as I understand it, one of the most recent laws was the money laundering law, which was which was definitely actually specifically for, for art transactions. But as I understand no, it- No, 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 David, the, the, the anti-money laundering laws and regulations were not designed specifically for art. For art, yeah. They were designed for the art business. Yeah, yeah. They were designed to eradicate or deter money laundering. And, and so, but and they, they got they, going first, and then it was decided that they would specifically mention the art activity. Sure. Okay. As against them being invented for the art world. Yes. Okay. But, but I say that because in the USA, the USA has is lagging behind mainland China has got strong anti-money laundering, so has continental Europe or the EU, so has the UK, but the USA is very slow. They're kind of reluctant to do it. 
And they've got anti-money laundering, but not in relation to the art world. They right. are thinking about whether they maybe have these anti-money laundering regulations apply to the sale of antiquities. So just to clarify that, what you mean is that there were these general anti-money laundering laws, um, but they weren't, they, they weren't, they were tending to ignore the, the art world. And then suddenly a few years ago, they realized that probably a they lot were, of money yeah, was being laundered that, that, in the art world. That's what I am saying. Yeah. And they were invented for banks and banking sure. initially, yeah. originally. And then they extended to business transactions where banks would be involved in transferring money. Are there and any then other... they realized that there was the potential for illegal, dirty money laundering activity, which, which can be the mm. art world, of the course. art trading world. Are there, any other, are there any laws that are specifically created to do with the art world, or is that- No, I think that it's a very, very it's a, a kind of hoary old chestnut, David. What you're driving at here is this. From the, from the international point of view, there is no such thing, I will say this quite boldly, there may be other art lawyers who would disagree. There's no such thing as international art law. Okay? But actually, I profess to be knowledgeable and experienced in international art law. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've taught it for you at mm -hmm. Sotheby's. Okay, what, it, what does that mean? What it means is that unlike international businesses of most kinds, international business, whether you think about air transport, international business, okay? You think of banking, international business. Think of pharmaceuticals, international business. Think of oil, international business. You think of uh, the law of the sea, of shipping, international business. Or you, you think of sports, international business, okay? Whether it be soccer, or whether it be Wimbledon that's on here at the moment, or the World Cup, or the Olympics, international. Most international industries regulate themselves. They have their own standards, their mm -hmm. own templates of contracts, their own uh, codes of behavior mm -hmm. for, for like conducting them. Currently with the transgender issues with athletics and sports. Exactly, exactly so. So the industry gets its act together and says, we've got to have a common set of standards. Sure. Oh, okay, whatever it may be. And they come up with their own. So if you want to participate in that industry internationally, you have to kind of sign up to an association or a, a membership of something or other to be credible. It, it rather like the, the guilds in the Renaissance. Mm. No, you had to be a member of the guild because the guilds controlled the marketplace and the, and the standards of behavior and all that stuff. Okay, if those industries regulate themselves, often the national laws of the countries where they operate leave them alone mm -hmm. because they're not causing any trouble. And they're not really turn over, turning over and sufficient money to really... Yeah, but if, if the industry is a major industry in any one country, any one jurisdiction, as we say, the law might be regulate them yeah. in some way. Because okay? there's a lot of so, monetary... A, so you get a combination of self-regulation, 
or if it's not working as well and the legislators, the government says, change your behaviour, regulate, and they don't do it or they don't do it well enough, the, the, then the legislation says, right, the law will be imposed and regulate you. So there'll be a combination of self-regulation and, okay, and then it goes above national to international, like the World Trade Organization, the G7, the G20, the United Nations, they all get together and say, there's an international problem, like money laundering or whatever it may be. And there may be international regulations that the member countries of the United Nations sign up to implement in their own country. So you get, for example, in our field, David, you get the United Nations, UNESCO's convention mm -hmm. from 1970 on the prohibition of the legally exported art mm. and the repatriation of art that ought to go back to where it came from. That's yeah, the that's UNESCO it. convention, which is, which is <coughs> one of the nearest examples we have in the art world to there being an international art law, if you see what I mean. But it's very narrow because mm. it's mainly dealing with antiquities Yep. on older art that's been okay it's about Cult cultural moving, heritage cultural patrimony cultural mm -hmm. heritage for example so in that way and then another example would be copyright copyright and moral rights there is an international convention which was signed in 1886 which most countries in the world have signed up to implementing a common set of standards for the protection of visual and other creative works, music, film, whatever it is. So there is a kind of international framework which is enforceable internationally. So that's the nearest thing I can think of that, 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 that we have as two examples. But apart from that, that, that there are one or two others. There is no international regulation of the art world. Sure. And I guess... it's not created self-regulation. There is no common set of standards mm. amongst art dealers, art fairs, when everyone does their own thing. Absolutely. And some of the other examples, I, I guess, would be CITES, which is, you know, works of art often have ivory and uh, animal flora and fauna, which is now protected in them. That can oh, be... Well, that's very, very niche. Yeah. And that yeah. CITES is about saying, what can we do with the ivory trade? Oh, it's a world problem. And whatever those conventions are, whatever CITES is, has an impact on the art world. It wasn't done because of the because art Because of world. it, yeah. I guess yeah. International Council of Museums is another regulation body that aspires towards law, but doesn't Which is become... voluntary. The, yeah. the ICOM, International Council of Museums, is great, and it has hundreds of members, museums and gallery institutions, like non-selling collections around the world, become members of ICON and shape its approach. And it comes up with its own code of behavior. But it's a code, it's not a law. Not a law. Uh, so Henry, it, it, you... it's, sorry, it's oh, no, close no. to yeah. self-regulation, but Absolutely. there's no law enforcing it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really interesting for the listeners to see that 
that you know the art world still remains it's self-regulated most of the time and it's only when just to just to kind of um praise what you've been saying um it it's only when it comes to the attention of governments and larger legal systems because it seems to intrude on yeah, other areas right. like money laundering think, that it becomes a big issue about, if you think about claire mccann is claire mccann, claire McCann. Yeah. reports yeah. economics are economics yeah. okay the art market Her reports. annual reports yeah. which are totally reliable and brilliant when she estimates that 60 roughly 60 billion dollars was mm. spent on art last year so mm -hmm. far as she can guess and yes. so as records show 60 billion dollars it's nothing <laughs> exactly yeah so who gives a damn yeah. And the, the other law I know you were involved in was the, which I think is a really interesting one, and I know you you were interested, very interested in this, um, is the Duat de Suites law in, that started, as I imagine, from the from the title in, in France and then into the European Union. Did, and yeah. As yeah, I yeah. understand it, the United Kingdom only signed up to that as a law in 2006. And this, this is something yeah. that does directly affect the art world. Do you want to say more about how that came about and your involvement yeah. in it? Yeah, oh, oh, we'll do it. Okay. Just a, a, a thumbnail sketch um, uh, uh, of the origins of, and uh, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll lead into a, a full on answer. Uh, about how it came about in the UK. In the 1870s, this is not a long story, David, there was an artist uh, called uh, Jean-Francois Millet, not the English Millet, but he was the Millet, M-I-W-L-E-T, who was famous for maybe the Angelus, Yes. The evening prayer, you yes. know, with the two peasant people turning yep. in the field. Farmers in the fields the praying. Um, or the gleaners, the, mm. the ladies on the beach or in the field, gleaning after the, the harvest of the straw. Okay. Here's what the Angelus was bought by a French rich industrialist collector um, during his lifetime. I think he died in 1875, roughly. It was bought around about 1860 by an industrial, French collector industrialist, a rich guy called Secretin. And he bought it and he had a collection of, of those um, uh, mid 19th century French painters. And Secretin was going bankrupt years after Millet had died. So towards towards the end, towards like Van Gogh was just about to commit suicide. Okay, around eighteen ninety, and he held. You know, we talk about auctions. Why do people auction things? The three Ds. Remember all that stuff. Death, debt, divorce. divorce. Okay. So Secretan was in debt, so he had to sell his collection. So he sold his collection at Drew, via Druo in Paris, and it was a massive collection, and it was reported widely in the media. And the, the Angelus, which he bought for, I think at the time, 500 francs, it doesn't matter what a franc was worth, that was a currency, 500 francs, sold that night for 500,000 <laughs> francs. Over a 25-year period, it had gone from 500 
to 500,000, largely because Mila had died and also posterity had been very kind to him. And even artists like Van Gogh were running around Paris saying, wasn't Mila great? Okay, so the market value shot up like that. It became a media sensation and everybody's running around saying, well, where's what happened to Millet's family? And they were living on the streets of Montmartre as, as a pauper's. His children and grandchildren had no money. And they're saying it's a scandal. All this money being made from his work and his family, his surviving family, have nothing. So that led to the idea in a very French way of saying we ought to have a law that gives artists the legal right, like a, a copyright type law, a legal right to a small percentage of the resale price paid for their works after death, for a period of time after death. And eventually in 1920 in France, it was passed to be not just after death, also during their lifetime, whenever the works were resold, okay. So the idea of the droit de suite, which is the right of following or the right to follow, or as we say in the Anglo-American language, an artist resale right, okay, spread throughout continental Europe, throughout the 20th century. And each country, Italy, Germany, you know, wherever, Spain, had their own version of the French version. It was, it was not the same. And by the time the European Union looked at it around about the, the millennium, the turn of the millennium, they realized it should be harmonized. So they invented a harmonized scheme that, that, that eventually was agreed that all the, all the uh, member states of the European Union would abolish their own version of it and replace it with a standard European version of it, which included, David, in 2006, the UK. Because until 2021, the UK was a member of the European. That's how it got introduced. But but am I right in saying the UK didn't have its own version before two thousand and six? No, the UK the didn't have its own version. Caused the control. I did. Uh, I did a lot in in the early years of me being the kind of go to UK art lawyer. I was contacted. <laughs> I was visited by um, Pablo Picasso, Picasso's son, the mm -hmm. boy with the guitar. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, wow. Um, by his name. His name was Claude, Claude Picasso, yep. who wanted my advice and my help to establish some kind of collecting society for artists that would push for not only the enforcement of copyright, particularly for Pablo Picasso's works being reproduced in the UK, there needed to be some kind of enforcement agency body. He asked me if I would help to set it up because of the work that I was doing. And I thought it was a really good idea. It would be a copyright 
an artist copyright enforcement agency, which would enforce copyright in the UK for any artist from anywhere in the world that asked us to, okay, that, that asked for it to be done. And he was particularly interested in saying, I can give you some money or I can make some money available for it to be set up as a kind of non-for-profit, you know, charitable, as we would say in the UK, mm -hmm. venture. But independent, so, not government run. No, not government run. So um, to cut a long story short, I worked with, with uh, Claude and set one up. And eventually it became what we now know as DAX. Yeah. Design and Artist Copyright Society. That's how it became. And I was instrumental. I wasn't necessarily a founding member because it was it was it's run by artists for artists. Sure. But I helped it along the way to give birth to it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was being done for copyright purposes, mm -hmm. but also they were lobbying UK government and giving them ammunition and information, including papers that I'd written and, and talks that I gave for art monthly to introduce. The resale right of the the, the mm -hmm. suite in the UK, mm -hmm. and once we started talking to Europe about it, it was an open door. Mm -hmm. It was like saying, "From the UK, you're talking about this. Mm -hmm. Who are you? Are you government? No, we're independent." Mm -hmm. And so they liked what we were saying, and eventually the EU sort of said to the UK, "I think you're going to have to do this." Mm -hmm. So they gave the UK. Uh, we didn't have it in the UK. We didn't have it in Austria. We didn't have it in the Republic of Ireland. And we didn't have it in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. So there were four EU member states that didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And they were told by the EU, directed by EU law in 2001, that they had five years to, to invent, mm -hmm. to implement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's how it came about. And then, and then it happened. And then it happened in 2006. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and Henry, I'm, I'm aware of our time today and what I'm proposing, and I'm, I'm proposing this with the listeners listening, because I'm sure they agree with me. I think we need a part two, um, maybe, <laughs> in a, maybe in a few weeks time, because there's, a, there's other things um, on, on the list of, the, of questions I wanted to ask you which I think the listeners would be very interested in your view on, like auction houses we were going to talk about, galleries, sure. you know, commercial galleries and non-commercial galleries perhaps, and artists' estates, which you nearly hit on uh, then, yeah. which I know is another part of your, your interest, yeah, yeah. the Henry Lydia uh, partnership. May I suggest that we, we finish now, this is a part one, and that we then record again. Uh, in a few weeks time and we'll have a part two <laughs> i'd be delighted to do that david i've enjoyed talking to you and i fear that i've talked much more no, about because myself i just suddenly do. realized that there's just so much to talk about with you as there is with okay. many of my guests um and 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 with some of them indeed i'm going to do a, a follow-up so i think that that oh, would right. work really well okay. so um henry thank you very much for uh, being my guest today and we look forward to welcoming you back in a maybe in a few weeks' time towards the end of the summer, and then listeners can look forward to part two, hearing your views on uh, ethics, law, and the art world. So thank you very much, Henry. My pleasure, David. Thank you.